thing. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And you know if you've read Exodus, this is the setup for God about to act in powerful, miraculous ways, sending Moses and Aaron with power, culminating ultimately in the Exodus from Egypt. That's what happens when God remembered his covenant. Turn a few chapters later to chapter 6. Pick it up in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. With a strong hand he will send them out. With a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I'm the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but, my, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel from Egypt, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. See how God's, I'm about to do powerful things, Moses, it's because I've remembered my covenant. We don't need to turn there. You can turn back to Psalm 119, but you also think of Hannah praying before the Lord. Eli thinks she's drunk because she's so brokenhearted about her barrenness. And what do we read in 1 Samuel 1, 19 through 20? They rose early in the morning and worshiped for the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. She called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. So when the scripture speaks of God remembering, the idea here, your blank is, the the prayer is that God would act. That God would act on his word to him. Notice this is personal. This isn't just, Lord, remember the things you've said. It's remember your word to me, your servant. Your promises to me. Remember them. Act on them. Promises of deliverance. Promises to uphold him. Promises to sustain him. That's his plea. That God would act on his word to him. And then notice this little bit at the end. In which you have made me hope. He recognizes that God has caused him to hope in his word. If God has drawn you, if God has worked in you, he has surely also caused you to hope in his word. This world has many things to entice you to put your hope in. Your health, your plans, your family, your job. When God does a work in the heart of man and woman, he does a work that causes them to hope in his word, in his promises, in what he has said. And so he recognizes his own response. Lord, this is what you've caused me to hope in, he's saying. Now remember that word you've spoken to me, which is my hope, which you've made me hope in. It's your doing that I'm hoping in it, Lord. So now fulfill it. Act. That's that's the only, only petition in this section. It's his plea and his hope that God would remember and act upon his word to him. Then verse 50 his comfort in his affliction. So he he lays out his request. The only request in this section 
And then a second sub-theme in this section, that of comfort. It shows up here in verse 50. shows up again in verse 52. And I think by implication in verse 54, comfort. You'll remember the psalmist is in difficult situation. Likely outside of the land, quite possibly in the Babylonian exile. We can't be certain. He identifies himself as a sojourner. He is among the godless. He is possibly subject to pagan kings and princes plotting against him. He has many enemies, people attacking him, and yet he finds comfort in his affliction that your promise gives me life. His comfort in his affliction. First notice, God saves him in and not from affliction. Now sometimes God, in fact, does save us from affliction. But quite often, he preserves us in it and not from it. He's in affliction, and yet because of God's grace and goodness, he's finding comfort in the affliction. Daniel went into the lion's den and was safe there. So God may deliver you from the actual affliction. But more often, I think, he he delivers us in it. He finds comfort in his affliction. And what is that comfort? God's Past faithfulness is his present comfort. God's past faithfulness is his present comfort. This is my comfort and my affliction, that your promise gives me life. It's the same thought. God has promised to do things to him. God has caused him to place his hope upon those promises. And now he's taking comfort knowing God's promises can be relied upon. God's promises sustain him and give him life. That that. Request in this psalm occurs about 20 times. Revive me, give me life, strengthen me. Various ways of translating it. He's tired, he's weak, he's threatened. And then he takes comfort knowing that God's promises can be relied upon. God has again and again and again given him life. Look back in Psalm 119 at verse 25. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. Look at verse 37. Turn my eyes from worthless things and give me life in your ways. Or verse 40. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. Again and again, he's asked God to uphold him, to sustain him, to give him life. And again and again, God's promises can be relied upon. So he calls on God to remember his word. He recognizes this is the word, God, that you've caused me to put my hope in. And now I'm taking comfort in the confidence that God's promises can be relied upon, that God will, in fact, act. The power of remembering. When God remembers his promises, he acts. You can count on him to do this. You can count on him to deliver you according to his word. So the first two verses, we see God being called upon to remember. Now, in the rest of this, the last six verses, the psalmist now he's going to respond with his own remembering. Calls on God to remember his promises to him. He identifies, this is the very thing, Lord, you've caused me to hope in. This is what gives me comfort, your promises, giving me life. And now amidst persecution, he remembers God's word. Verses 51 to 53. The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. Hot indignation seizes me 
because of the wicked who forsake your law. So, three things to see in this next section. First, his contrasting reality. His contrasting reality. On the one hand, the insolent utterly deride me. And you may expect that might cause him to falter, to stumble. On the other hand, he says, I do not turn away from your law. So the first blank here is hostility. He is facing hostility. The insolent, the arrogant, the proud utterly deride me. He's around godless people. And the godless regularly mock and ridicule the godly. Jesus himself warns us in Matthew 10, 25, it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? And you remember in Matthew 27, 39, on the cross, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. The godless derided our Lord, insulted and ridiculed him, how much more his servants. So we shouldn't be surprised when we're made fun of, when we're ridiculed. It's true in the psalmist day, it's true in our day. When people start to understand what we believe, there will always be part of what we believe that offends, even as part of it attracts, as our culture's values shift, and we will be subject to ridicule. And yet, we're going to see something in this section that doesn't let that cause him to be faithless, to turn from God. He's faithful. That's the contrasting reality. He's being derided. He's being ridiculed. Your next blank here is integrity, but I do not turn away from your law. Hostility and integrity. That's the contrast. His environment is a hostile environment, yet he walks with his own integrity. He does not turn away from God's law. How, how is that? I think the next verse gives us some inkling of how he does that. He says, when I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. Now, I think, when I think, same root, zakar, for remember. Um, so your next point here is his comforting remembrance. His comforting remembrance. How is it that he's able to keep his integrity, to remain faithful to God, despite being utterly ridiculed by the godless. Well, he remembers God's word from of old. He remembers God's statutes from of old. That from of old is an interesting expression. And I think what he's getting at is the, the timeless, eternal, unchanging, immutable, stable truth of God's word in a hostile world. The insolent are throwing insults, they're attacking him. He's got something solid and sure. Moreover, um, I think by this reference to your statutes is a reference not just to the laws and decrees, but the entire telling of salvation history. He's got the story of the Exodus. He's got the story of the deliverance from the flood. He's got the testimony of God's kindness and saving grace. And so even as he's being attacked... And derided, he's able to walk in his integrity because he's finding comfort in remembering God's ordinances from of old. He remembers God's statutes from of old. And I think that's the idea. That expression shows up a couple other times in Psalm 25, 6. Remember your mercy, O Lord, 
your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. It's, it's who you are. You're unchanging, right? Or Psalm fifty-five, nineteen: God will give ear and humble them. He who is enthroned from of old. And again, the idea is God's not a new king. He's always been king. He's eternally king. So he's getting at the timeless, changeless, immutable stability of God's word. And it gives him support. And he takes comfort from it. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. He takes comfort in God's past faithfulness, I believe. He's seeing the record of God's faithfulness. Let me take a brief aside. Go to Psalm 77. Let me show you how this works practically. We saw last week how discouraged the psalmist can get at not having an answer to the one who reproaches him about being disgraced. And we talked about how these are no small things. How do you take comfort from God's word? Practically, I think we have many examples. And it's the power of remembrance, remembering, putting before our minds who God is and what he's done. I was talking to someone about this last week. We need to learn the practice of remembering, of sitting down and saying, okay, I need to rehearse, remind myself who God is. Let me, let me show you this practically at work in Psalm 77. So in Psalm 77, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open so that I'm troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. And we see five questions the psalmist is wrestling with. And they're big, troubling questions. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this to the years of the right hand of the Most High. So consider those questions. And what he's really saying here, will God, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Is he only angry from here on out? He, he, he was kind and favorable before, but is he now just going to spurn forever? Or verse 8, has his steadfast love forever ceased? I know God had loyal covenant love, but maybe that stopped. This is what he's wrestling with thinking. He's discouraged. Are his promises at an end for all time? Can you still trust him? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in his anger shut up his compassion? These are heavy questions on the verge of blasphemy. To conclude any of these with a yes would be blasphemous. But this is what's on his heart. And I love the reality of the Psalms being honest about what's troubling him. Now, Watch what he does. Verse 11 and 12. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. And then there's this radical change of attitude. Your way, O God, is holy. 
What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph, Salah. How how do you get from, can I trust God anymore, to that? Well, he's remembered and remembered and pondered and meditated on what God has done. And we get some clue about what he was considering. Look at verse 16. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. What was he considering? The Exodus, the Red Sea parting. He stops and goes and reads the early chapters in Exodus. And he's reminded of who God is and what he has done. And his attitude changes. He's praising God. It's the same thing here. How do you, how do you remain faithful when people are mocking you and ridiculing you and making fun of you? Utterly deriding you? How do you not turn away from God's law? Well, the psalmist here is, remembers God's rules of old, and he takes comfort. He remembers God's faithfulness. More so than not falling away, he actually becomes zealously empowered. His comforting remembrance, then his consuming result. Because of his remembering of God's statutes and word, he doesn't shrink back timidly falling away from God's word. Rather, he grows in zeal. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Yeah, he's, he's filled with hot indignation. Not timid fear. What's, what's going on? <coughs> he's experiencing loyal love for God. How, how does God feel about those who fall away from his word? By the way, notice this is a separate category, possibly. The insolent in verse 51 could be any unbeliever, any godless person who's mocking God's word and God's people. Here, we've got something a little different. The blank here is apostasy. Here, what's particularly provoking him are those who had God's law, at some point in the past had held to God's law, and now they have abandoned God's law. They're the ones doing exactly what he hasn't done, right? I do not turn away from your law, verse 41. 51, sorry, but verse 53, he's filled with hot indignation for those who forsake God's law. Here's how he doesn't forsake God's law. As he's remembering who God is and how faithful God's been, and he reads about Israel in the wilderness, grumbling, turning away from it. Look at these stiff-necked people. Look what God's done for them. How can they grumble because they don't have quail? How can they put him to the test again and again? And he's filled with hot indignation because of the wicked who forsake your law. He's dealing with the issue of apostasy. And here he's just reflecting God's heart. Let me read to you the end of Deuteronomy. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, you're about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after other foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. And they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they'll be devoured 
And many evils and troubles will come upon them so that they will say in that day, have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done because they have turned to other gods. So his anger, his indignation at the wicked who forsake God's law is imitating perfectly God's own anger at such things. He's not shrinking back at their taunts. He's loyally devoted to God, filled with indignation. And that's what's going to guard him from being one of those people. I don't want to be one of those people who forsakes God's law. I'm going to hold fast to it. All because he's remembering God's word. So in the first section, remembering God's word is the confidence that God will act. In the second, we remember God's word. It gives us comfort, it gives us hope, and it fills us with zeal. Fills us with zeal. That we would not be those who forsake God's law, but hold to it. You remember, who is Jesus when he comes most provoked and most angry at? It's not the Greeks who don't have the law. It's the Pharisees who had it and yet have perverted, corrupted, forsaken it truly, even as they claim to hold it. Loyal love for God means anger at that which offends him. If if I love my wife, then I'm opposed to that which attacks my wife, degrades my wife. If I love God... I feel indignation and anger at those who blaspheme his name, who are faithless to the one who is utterly faithful. So he calls on God to remember his promise. Amidst persecution, he remembers God's word. Finally, living as a sojourner, he remembers God's name. Living as a sojourner, he remembers God's name. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. I remember your name in the night, O Lord. And keep your law. This blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. We'll follow the same pattern as our last section. First, we'll look at his present reality. His present reality. Not only um, does he remember God's word, what we saw up in verse 52, but now he's singing it. God's word fuels his worship. God's word fuels his worship. But notice that when he's singing, your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. I remember your name at night. I I do get the idea there's some alienation and loneliness going on here. He's singing in a house of sojourning. That's the idea of being an alien, a stranger, not at home. One of the reasons why I believe this psalm is written off the land That's continually how God speaks about their time in Egypt. You were sojourners in Egypt. Why is Israel supposed to have compassion on the stranger and the alien and the sojourner? Well, because you were sojourners, God tells them. And we know ultimately Israel gets taken off the land and spends time in Babylon. Whether or not that's the um, impetus behind this statement in this psalm, the psalmist is experiencing that alienation. It provides comfort and strength in his alienation. In his alienation. This this adds further to the difficulty, right? He's not at home. And those around him mock him, deride him. But we as well are not at home. Is that not true? 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles... 
to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. If you truly believe what God has said, if you're following after Christ, you also will be a sojourner and a stranger in this world. This world will not be your home. And that can get lonely and tiresome and difficult. The psalmist recognizes God's word gives him comfort and strength. It's his song in the house of my sojournings. Your statutes have been my songs. In the house of my sojournings, I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. So his present reality, God's word fuels his worship, and it provides comfort and strength in his alienation. Now we get to his personal remembrance, his personal remembrance. It's a subtle shift, but it's significant. Before, in verse 52, what was he remembering? Your rules. In verse 55, it's your name. Your name. His personal remembrance. And when we think of God's name, whether it's praying in Jesus' name or anything you ask in my name, it's not a magic word. God's name is his character. God's name is his character. Turn back to Exodus um, 34. I know we go here again and again and again, but it's a massive passage of significance as God reveals his character to Moses and to us. You know, God reveals himself progressively. We saw in Exodus 6 how he tells Moses that he didn't reveal the fullness of his name to Abraham, Jacob, or Isaac. Well, now we get an even greater revelation. In Exodus 34, Moses up on the mountain cries out in verse 18, please show me your glory. And then in chapter 34, the Lord God reveals as much of his glory as Moses can handle. Look at verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. God's name is his character. It's who he is. And so the psalmist says, I remember your name. He's remembering this, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Notice in God's glory and his name, you see both his patience and his forgiveness and his grace and his justice. They're both present in his name. Our God is a loving and just God. The psalmist considers that. God's name is his character. Therefore, remembering who God is motivates him to obey. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. And think about that, right? How might remembering God's character motivate us in obedience? You could consider his grace, his patience, how patient he's been with you. He knows we're dust. 
He knows we're weak and frail. Like a father is mindful for his children, so he's mindful for us. You could consider that. Love could well up. Desire to please. Or you could remember that as gracious as God is, those who forsake him, he gives justice to. Sometimes it's the fear of the Lord in that sense that keeps me straight. I don't want to get zapped. Both God's saving, gracious character and his righteous holiness can function as motivators for us at various times in obedience. But he confesses here, even in the house of his sojourning, even as he's singing God's word as his song, he remembers God's name and it causes him to keep his law. Remembering who God is motivates him in obedience. And finally, his providential result. His providential result. This blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. Now I know some translations here differ in their rendering of this last verse. I want to read briefly from George Zemeck on this. I think the ESV gets it right. A variety of translations and interpretations have been offered for verse 56. It seems best to view the possessive affirmation of verse 56a as a bridge between the truth of verse 55b and that truth's climactic recapitulation in verse 56b. In other words, he testifies that his obedience, even under oppression, is God's providence for his life. You see, ultimately, he's only obeying because God's empowering him. He's, he's doing the things God's told him to do. He's calling on God to remember his word, and he in turn is going to remember God's word, and he in turn remembers who God is, and that results in obedience. But he sees even in that God's hand. He doesn't take credit for the obedience. He credits God with it. Um, my pastor's pen, in fact, this month deals with this issue. Sanctification, is it God's work or is it my work? The answer is, of course, yes. Yes. Is it God working in me or is it me working harder than all of them, as Paul says? Do I work out my salvation with fear and trembling or is God working in me both to will and to do? Yes. We see that same thing here. And notice this strophe is capped with these references to the sovereignty of God. Verse 49, in which you have made me hope. He doesn't even take credit for hoping in God's word. Verse 56, this blessing has fallen to me that I've kept your precepts. His obedience is a result of God's providence, even as he shows us in this strophe how this has come to be. It's not magic. God uses means. He distributes his grace through ordinary means. And we see the means with which the psalmist has been faithful is the means of remembering God's word and remembering God's person, even in persecution, even in conflict. He's externally derided. He's far from home. He takes comfort in God's word. He takes comfort in knowing God is faithful to his word. And he spends time remembering God's person and character and he obeys, and he holds fast. He's, he's modeling for us how we, as aliens and strangers, can hold fast to God's word. Three remembrances in this passage. Calling on God to remember his word to us. Modeling the importance of our remembering God's word and what he has done. 
and our remembering who God is to us. It's critical for, for holding fast to him in this world. I'm going to close in a word of prayer, and we'll transition to our time of communion. Lord God, we call on you to do that which we know you will do. Lord God, remember your word to us, your servants. Remember your promises from of old. And Lord, give us the grace that we might, in turn, remember them as well. Remember your testimonies and your precepts and your word to us. Remember your patience with your people. Let us remember you and your character and your name, that we might hold fast to your word and not be those who raise your anger by forsaking your law. But by faith and by your enablement, let this blessing fall to us that we might hold fast to your word as well. In Jesus' name, amen.